Hey, it's Andy. Welcome or welcome back to the Brownsbridge Church podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to download the Brownsbridge Church app where you can access all of our recent message content as well as find out more information about Brownsbridge Church. And the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Did you have a favorite fairy tale when you were growing up? I know for some in the room, that may be a long, long time ago to remember the fairy tales of your childhood. Maybe you've got young kids right now, and if you do, you're in the midst of it. You don't even have to think uh, far back because you're reading fairy tales every night to your kids. Um, Maybe you had a a favorite one, but even if you didn't, you you remember them. Uh, How did they always begin? Once upon a time, right? Yeah, they were all the same in that regard. And then they essentially were all the same going on. I mean, the story might be a little bit different. The details might be a little bit different, but there was always three factors, three elements to a fairy tale. The first was interesting characters. There'd be an evil queen or a charming prince or a beautiful princess or a talking snowman named Olaf. There was always interesting characters in a fairy tale. And then there would be supernatural events, right? There'd be a magical mirror, who's the fairest of them all. And there was a glass slipper that would magically turn you back into a princess. There was, there was hair that would grow continuously for stories down this tower and that somehow was strong enough for people to climb up. There, there was people that slept forever. Uh, there was a beanstalks that would grow high into the sky. There was all sorts of supernatural events that went along with fairy tales. And then the third element, and this is probably the most important one, is is this right here, important life lessons, right? There was a moral to the story. This is the reason why we love reading them with our kids because we hope that they'll glean from them some sort of character advice for their lives. And these important life lessons were always virtues. It was um, something to be looked up to. It was, um, hey, don't be prideful or don't be vain or value others above yourselves or, or don't, don't value your position in life over the people in your life. There was always an important life lesson to them. Now, here's the interesting thing. For followers of Jesus in the room, if you consider yourself a church person, based on this list right here, you could be talking about fairy tales or you could be talking about the Bible, right? Like the New Testament, the the Old Testament, the the Bible has interesting characters. Specifically in the New Testament, you've got a a passionate fisherman. You've got a corrupt financial advisor that's kind of leading the finances of the group. You've got a tax collector, which in this day and age, we don't really have someone to compare to that about how lowly they look down on the tax collector. You had interesting characters, you had supernatural events, walking on water, healing the blind, the deaf can hear, people that were dead or raised back to life, all sorts of supernatural events. And then thirdly, tons and tons of important life lessons. So it's easy to see why someone might think that the Bible is just a fairy tale. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, um, you kind of struggle with the whole faith thing. Maybe someone invited you. This is your very first time in church. We don't blame you if you think the Bible is a fairy tale. We really don't. We can see exactly why someone might believe that. But one of the main differences, one of the main differences between the Bible and fairy tales is that the accounts in the New Testament happened in real places. 
It took place in locations that you can actually go and visit. With fairy tales, you can't do that. You can't go to Cinderella's castle or the cave of the seven dwarves or see Rapunzel's tower, you know, where the hair grew out of it. And oh, you see, there's still a lock of hair hanging down from the tower. No matter how badly you want to go see Anna and Elsa's castle from Frozen, you cannot. So you gotta just let it go. (laughs) But the Bible, the Bible records accounts that took place in actual places, in locations that you can go and visit. It wasn't just once upon a time with the Bible, it's once upon a land. And in this series, over the next couple of weeks, I wanna take us to the specific places where New Testament accounts took place. Um, and as I uh, uh, say that, I, I realize that there's, there's plenty of places around the Mediterranean that are documented in the New Testament, but most of the accounts take place in and around Israel or what was called in the first century Palestine. So if you hear me say Palestine or Israel, I'm using those terms interchangeably. But a little over a year ago, my wife and I got invited on a trip uh, with a handful of pastors across the country uh, to go visit uh, Israel. And we were so impacted by this trip. And my hope is to bring a little bit of that to you. There, um, when you go over there and visit in person, some of you have probably done this. Um, there are places that are 100% like this is the, the exact place where this happened. And those things are just incredible to see. And then there's some things that are like, okay, we're not sure if it happened here or here, but we know it probably happened somewhere in this area. And then there's some places that are like, yeah, it definitely did not happen here. We don't know. We don't have a clue of where it happened because the, the archeological evidence is not there. And you'll certainly see a great deal of people trying to sell you stuff. Like um, there's one electronic store in Jerusalem that'll let you see Jesus's first iPhone. <laughs> and if you pay $5, you can send yourself a text message from it. So I made that up. It's not that bad, but it's, it's pretty close, believe me. In this series, we're gonna focus on those places that are, have been proven archeologically, that these are the exact location of where this event took place. And my hope, my hope in this series is that it would make it more real for you. And that if you're a skeptic in here, you're not a church person, you're not a Bible person, you think the whole thing's fairy tale, that it would just make you reconsider. Or at least ask the question, okay, What if, what if the New Testament really does document things that actually happened? Hope you reconsider. If you're you're already a Christian, you're already a follower of Jesus, I hope it reassures you in your faith. I hope it re-encourages you in what you believe and who you follow. That's what we're gonna do in this series, Once Upon a Land. And to get started, uh, we need to talk about location. Like, Why does it matter that uh, there's a land where these took place. Why does location matters? Um, why does location matter when uh, we're talking about these events? Can't they just have happened anywhere? Well, with the land, you actually can, um, you can compare if things have actually happened or not. There's facts that you can check. And when you check those things out, it makes it more reliable. It becomes more real to you. And it matters if it's real or not because... If the moral of the story, whatever story it is we're reading, if it intersects with our life, if it, if it collides with 
with what's going on in our lives and we wanna go one direction, but the moral of the story is telling us to go in the other direction. Well, if it's just a fairy tale, then it has no power in our lives. Think about the tortoise and the hare. You remember that one? Who won the race? The tortoise, right? And the moral of the story was slow and steady wins the race, right? Now, if you think about your your current reality, your life or the life of those around you, which describes it better, the tortoise or the hare? Come on, y'all, we're a bunch of rabbits just running around in every different direction. You know, we, we, we have the moral of the story telling us, hey, slow and steady runs the race. You don't have to overwork. You don't have to sprint. It's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. But then we have, well, there's just so much going on in life. The circumstances of our lives say, nah, you know I mean? We gotta do this and we gotta do that. We've got kids, we got jobs, we got kids sports. And we know we better be on that travel team because how else is he gonna get a college scholarship? So we gotta go to Idaho to play soccer this weekend just to ensure, you know, that the college coaches see him really, putting the work in. And, and in that moment, we don't stick with the moral of the story because it has no power in our lives because we know it's just that. It's a made up story. But if it's real, specifically if the Bible is real, if it documents things that actually happened, and if Jesus really is who he says he is, then it takes on authority in our lives. And when we get to that crossroads where our circumstances and our desires are pulling us in one direction, but following Jesus would be pulling us in another direction. We're much more motivated to walk in his way if he's real. So let's talk about why location matters. Again, you can fact check uh, things in the accounts with elements of the actual location. And there's a handful of these, but we're just gonna look at a couple of them today. Geography, if someone's writing a story, you would think that um, as they talk about landscapes or um, weather or anything along those lines, that it would line up with where this event, where this story actually took place. If you were in the desert and you somehow were writing about snow, it'd be like, hey, something's off here. I don't know if I can trust what they're writing about. Secondly, historical events and figures. Uh, There's things going on outside of the story that should impact the story. Those elements should be there. Or again, it wouldn't necessarily be a reliable account. If someone lived in New York City in the fall of 2001 and they were writing about um, their life or what was going on and it was supposed to take place in that setting, you would think they would mention September 11th. Or at least that you would be able to see from their writing the impact of September 11th. There's culture. Everywhere you go, there's a specific culture and that culture would seep into the writing. You'd be able to see elements of it. And then lastly, names. Names differ in uh, different regions of the world, different regions of our country. You know, if you heard someone telling a story about uh, uh, Twyla Faye and uh, Billy Lou, uh, Twyla Faye and Billy Lou are getting married and Patty Mays gonna bring the tater salad to their wedding. What part of the country would you think that wedding is taking place in? Yeah, right? So name, names are different, right? So if someone writes an account and it's, it's gonna be full of names and you should be able to go, okay, Does that line up with the names and the culture and the geography and the historical places? If so, it doesn't necessarily prove everything they've said is true, but it validates it a little bit more. And if it's off, well, then it calls into question what the person is writing. And here's the thing. There is so much that lines up in each of these areas. I could spend hours talking about that. I'm not gonna do that, okay? We're gonna be out of here in about 20 minutes, all right? But there is so much here. Geography, the, the, the uh, detail in which the authors of the New Testament write about bodies of water and mountains and valleys is extraordinary. 
And they even, something as simple as this, every time they talk about Jerusalem, they always say they're going up to Jerusalem. If you pay attention, the next time you're reading your Bible, you'll see this. Every time they talk about going up to Jerusalem, they always use the word up. Doesn't matter what direction they're coming in because they weren't thinking like we do, where we look at a map and it's like, if we were going from Atlanta to Macon, we would not say we're going up to Macon. We would say we're going down to Macon. But when you're in the land, and let's say you're going from Jericho, which is about 20 minutes east of Jerusalem, you're going from Jericho to Jerusalem, it's literally uphill the whole way. And you realize the first time you're on that road, you realize, oh, this is why they always said we're going up to Jericho, excuse me, up to Jerusalem. Didn't matter what direction they were coming from. Same thing is true when they're going to Samaria, they say they're going down to Samaria and it was due north. So again, the geography checks out. It's described as someone would have experienced it in the first century. Historical events and figures. um, The New Testament takes place during the Roman Empire's rule in Palestine. And so they had all sorts of customs, all sorts of things that were a part of that. They had uh, emperors, uh, Caesar Augustus, when Jesus was born. Tiberius uh, uh, Caesar was the uh, emperor when Jesus uh, was crucified and resurrected. Uh, The Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea at the time. So there's these figures in Roman history. There's also the taxation um, piece that we see throughout New Testament as well. So there's all sorts of extra biblical history as well. Culture, you see specifically a a strong Jewish culture, culture. and not just a Jewish culture, but temple, the temple was still there until 70 AD. This is really important. We'll talk more about this next week, but uh, the Romans came in when uh, the Jews revolted in the sixties, they came in and they destroyed the temple, scattered all the Jews from the land in 70 AD. And so throughout the New Testament, you see over and over again, all these instances of temple life, which means it had to have been written before 70 AD. You see the culture coming through. And then lastly, names. Um, In recent years, last couple decades, there's been a number of different research uh, studies that have been done around the names of Jewish people throughout the Roman Empire. And in the same way that names in different regions in our country around the world differ greatly, they've discovered that in the Roman Empire, even though people were Jewish, in different regions, they would be named totally different. Uh, This did not come from studying the Bible, so I don't want you to think about the Bible right now. This came through um, ancient writings from rabbis. Rabbis were at the center of social life, so they would have documented a lot of names. Um, It came from Roman historians at the time. And then uh, the ancient Jews had this unique burial custom where they would um, let the body decompose, and then they would collect the bones and put them in what's called an ossuary. It was a box to hold the bones. And those boxes had names chiseled into the side of it. So through all these studies, they found thousands and thousands of instances of names throughout the Roman Empire. And they were able to see a very distinct pattern of names in different regions. And I wanna show you the top five most popular Jewish names in Palestine in the first century. But again, I don't want you to think about the Bible. This came through extra biblical studies. These were the popular names in the first century. Do you recognize any of those? I mean, you probably know some people that were named that. Some of y'all know some Johns, you know. Nobody's probably named Judas that you know, if I had to guess. (laughs) That one didn't turn out too great. (laughs) Two of Jesus's 12 followers were named Simon, Simon the Zealot, and then Simon known as Peter. We have several Josephs. Jesus' dad being one of them. But then we have Joseph of Arimathea that took Jesus' body at the end of his life. Lazarus was uh, raised from the dead in that famous New Testament account. His name was also used as just a made-up character in one of the parables 
Jesus told Judas, there's actually several Judases. We know one, he's the most popular, but not really popular is not the right word, but multiple Judases and several Johns as well. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. If you were to look at the names from another region, say Egypt, 500 miles away in the first century, the list is drastically different. Have you ever heard of a Docythius or Pappus, Sabbaticus, Ptolemaeus? Those were the top names in Egypt in the first and second century. And so what that means is, how did they get the names right? How did they get the names right? One of, one of the, the biggest critiques of uh, Christianity is that, oh, the accounts of Jesus, they weren't written until a hundred years later and in a different part of the world so that everyone had died off, all the eyewitnesses had died off so they could just kind of fabricate the stories and build them up. But if that's the case, if it was written in the hundred, you know, in the mid second century in Egypt, how would they have gotten the names right? The simplest explanation is that they were actually there and that the people were writing, they were reliably recording actual events that happened or they were interviewing people who were there. Because again, in the first century, no access to the internet. There's no libraries where you can go study this. You know, this, these research studies only, have only been done in the last 10, 20 years. And so whether it's names or culture or geography or historical figure, location matters. And so today and the next couple of weeks, we're gonna go on location to see what happened once upon a land. Today, uh, I wanna take you to a town called Capernaum. And next time you're on your iPhone uh, or your, 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 the Bible app on your phone or you're studying the scriptures, just look up Capernaum. Capernaum is mentioned 16 times by all four gospel writers. There's a number of different stories that you're already familiar with that you probably didn't even know took place in Capernaum. So we're gonna start here at Brownsbridge. Everybody look up and wave. Just kidding. So we'll zoom out. You see our beautiful country there and we will rotate around to the Middle East and zoom in on what is known as modern day Israel. First century, it was known as Palestine. Now, quick geography lesson here and you guys can speak up. Uh, what body of water is this? Some of y'all were not very confident. It's been a while since you've had geography. This is the Mediterranean Sea, okay? We'll do an easier one next. What continent is this? Africa. What continent is up here? Europe. What, confident, what, what, confident, what continent is over here? Asia, right? And you've got water right here. What kind of landform is this right here? Desert, right? Deep desert where it would be hard to survive today in the first century. You definitely would not be able to survive over here. And then you've got this one strip of green land right here. So in the ancient world, if you wanted to control most of the world, you just needed to control this piece of land. If you wanted to get from Africa to Europe or Africa to Asia, Asia to Africa, you had to travel right here. In fact, uh, today, uh, 500 million birds will migrate over this land right here because they can't fly over the water and they can't fly over the desert. So it's still that way today. This is the part of the world that you controlled in order to control it all. This is the reason why people have fought over this land for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. But I have a little bit of a brighter look on this than that. I think about how gracious it is that God chose to write his story right here and to send his son right here. 
so that the good news of the gospel could be spread to all the other nations. So this is Israel. We're going to zoom in today on Galilee. It's the northern region. Jerusalem's down south. We'll look at that in the coming weeks. This is Galilee. Much of the New Testament takes place up here. Jesus' hometown is somewhere right around in here. You see the Sea of Galilee here. We'll zoom in on that. Um, It's not a sea. It's a lake. Um, But as you know, several religions view this land as the holy land. Um, And so when you're in the holy land, everything kind of gets an upgrade. So the lakes are seas, the hills are mountains, the streams are rivers. Yes, there's moments where you'll go over the Jordan River and you'll be like, that was it? Like that was the whole thing? All this that I read about all the years? Wow. So this is the Sea of Galilee, Lake of Galilee. It's about the same size as Lake Lanier. It's just obviously shaped very differently, but it's uh, similar in size in terms of the water Capacity. Tons of uh, New Testament events take place right here, but we're going to zoom in specifically on Capernaum, which is on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, the ruins are there. You can see the first century ruins of this town. It was a prominent fishing village right on the coast. Um, A number of Bible characters lived there. Um, uh, James and John were brothers. They were the sons of Zebedee. They lived in Capernaum, they fished in Capernaum. Um, There was a major Roman highway that went by here called the Via Maris. And so they believe that this was a main hub for Roman taxation. So there was actually a very famous tax collector who lived here as well named Matthew. And somewhere in and around here is where Jesus called Matthew to follow him. Uh, This was Jesus's hometown during his ministry. In Matthew 4, it tells us that Jesus left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum, right here, one of these homes. And this also was the home of uh, St. Peter. Um, And If you look at this building right here, this is actually, this octagonal building is a modern day church that's been built over what they believe to be the house of Peter. And there is some archeological evidence that kind of points to it. I won't go into all that, um, but I will tell you that two things. Number one, this church looks like a spaceship when you're walking up. It is like something from Transformers or Star Wars or something. It it hovers. There's uh, these stakes on the outside that it sits on and it hovers. You can see some of these people up underneath. And so it's a really interesting building. And and the second thing I want to tell you is this is the only church I've ever been kicked out of. (laughs) True story. We, uh, you want to hear it? So we went in, they have a glass floor. It's like a bowl when you go into the church and they have a glass floor that sits right over the the top of Peter's house. You can look down into the ruins. And so our crew gets in there. We weren't a big crew. Um, There's probably 20 of us. And we go down to the railing and we're looking in and our tour guide's starting to tell us stuff. Right about the time we look over the railing, we hear the the priest or the pastor or whoever, the guy that was in charge, he starts going, um, hey, uh, actually didn't even really understand it, but I could tell he didn't want us there anymore. He was like, out, 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 you know, and, I think they were about to start a service and I thought it was interesting. I'm like, wow, they didn't invite us to the service. They just kind of shoot us out of the building. And um, I was thinking, gosh, it doesn't really feel like home there, if you know what I mean. (laughs) And so anyways, we're like, we're starting to move out and the people that were sitting in the crowd, they had plenty of seats, by the way, too. The the seats were not a problem. We could have sat down and enjoyed the service, but no, out, out, out. So we're kind of walking up the stairs to come out of the church and I'm kind of slowing down a little bit and I'm the last one in our party and the guy's like right here and he's shooing us on. And I'm just thinking to myself, wow, this is so wild to be getting kicked out of a church um, in the very place where the church was started. And we come down the stairs and I'm right here. They have this metal gate that slides across. And I'm telling you, the guy almost took off my leg as he slid that gate across and clanged it shut. And I was like, thank you, sir. Have a great day. 
Um, I probably won't be back. Literally, this is thousands of miles from my home. So if you go to Capernaum, one of the most visually outstanding things that you will see is the synagogue. It's right in uh, the middle of the ruins. You can see the ruins around this. And it is a beautiful, stunning building. Um, This building was probably built in the 300s. So Jesus did not teach in this synagogue. He did not live and interact in this synagogue. In the 300s, Emperor Constantine, um, when he became a Christian, he sent his mom to Palestine to go through and see, find all the the spots in Christianity and highlight them. And um, she found the synagogue here and had this synagogue built in the mid 300s. But the really cool thing is, even though this is not where Jesus taught, it is directly on top of where Jesus taught. You see these dark stones right here. This is the the wall and the foundation of the first century synagogue in Capernaum. And these white stones and white synagogue was built directly on top of it to scale and in the same style as the synagogue in the first century. So when you stand right there, you're standing where Jesus taught and where he interacted and where he did miraculous things in the first century. And today we're gonna look at one sermon that Jesus gave right here. The gospel writer, John tells us, he he says this, he said this, this is at the end of his sermon. He said, he says this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. He said it right here, more accurately, you know, right there. And so let me give you a little backdrop on this, that uh, Jesus had fed the 5,000 on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He returns to his hometown of Capernaum and all these people are following which is no surprise because he gave them food and food in the ancient world was a really, really big deal. So somebody feeds you, it's like, yeah, you stay with them for a while. And so he's, he comes to the synagogue and he's in the synagogue. Just imagine this, these crowds coming in to find Jesus. And uh, again, this is modeled after a first century synagogue. It would have looked just like this. They'd have been leaning against the pillars. They would have been standing shoulder to shoulder. They would have been sitting in these seats on the outside all kind of looking and listening and trying to get Jesus's attention. And they show up here at the synagogue. They find Jesus and they say, where have you been? Where have you been? How did you get here? How long have you been here? And Jesus doesn't answer their question. He he starts to kind of poke back at them a little bit. He says, hey, you're looking at me, not you're, you're looking for me, not because you want to follow me, not because you trust me. You're looking for me because you ate and you had your fill. You're looking for me because I fed you. And I just want you to know, I'm not ultimately here to just feed your stomachs. I'm here because I wanna give food for your souls. I'm up to something bigger. I wanna offer you a better bread. Bread that you'll eat and never hunger again. And so the crowd responds. They say, sir, always give us this bread, which is exactly what you and I would have said. If we were standing there, be like, oh yeah, if we can eat bread and then we never have to eat again, yes, please. And Then Jesus declared, I am the bread. Still not getting it. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. You you were there when I fed the 5,000, you ate and you had your fill and you've been listening to my teachings, but you still, you don't seem to be getting it. And as he's challenging them, they're starting to get riled up. Because it says this next. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread of heaven. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. 
They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Again, real people from real places. Nazareth, uh, Jesus's childhood hometown, um, was not very far away from Capernaum. And certainly people from Nazareth would have traveled to Capernaum because it was a bustling fishing city. So again, these people were like, wait a second. No, I know your dad. I know your mom. I know your brother. I know your cousin. I, I know where you played little league baseball. Okay, Jesus, don't try to pull this heaven, you know, bread from heaven thing with me. They're all in a roar, an uproar over this. And again, real people, real events, real places. How can he now say, I came down from heaven? How can you do this, Jesus? But Jesus doubles down. He says, I am, I am, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors, your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. And right here, he reaches back into the history of the ancient Israelites in this moment where all of the Israelites were wandering in the desert. You can read this account in the Old Testament and God provided this bread from heaven. They called it manna and it sustained them in the desert. And it became this symbol of their confidence in God that, okay, no matter what happens, no matter where we go, God's got our back. He's gonna take care of it. And now Jesus is kind of poking at that a little bit. He says, look, they ate the manna and they still died. Didn't matter how much manna they ate, their, their lives still came to an end. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. Again, he continues, I am, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And at this point, again, it's challenging for the audience in the first century, not so challenging to us yet, but it's about to get a little weird. So I just want you to buckle up, okay? He says this next, he says, this bread is my flesh. Like, wait a second, like flesh, like your skin, your body, this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And, and again, for you and I today, we can see this as, oh yeah, Jesus died on the cross. He gave his life, you know, they would not have had that context. So this would have been really, really confusing to them. And, and we see that next. It says, then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. Literally a fight broke out. That's what that means. So just imagine that big synagogue, everybody's standing there shoulder to shoulder. People just start throwing punches. It'd be like a church service has gone wild or something. I don't know. They began to argue sharply. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? How's this even possible? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now we've we're not only eating flesh, we're getting all Dracula-like vampire on us. You know, it's like, okay, wait a second, Jesus, what's going on here? He continues, whoever, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up to the last day, which sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? Like here's this potion and you drink this and you'll live forever. And it's like a fairy tale combined with a, a vampire story. You're drinking blood. This is getting really, really weird, Jesus. He says, he continues again, he doesn't, he doesn't waver. He says, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. This is the bread. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors, again, he points to this part of their history. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And this sermon kind of wraps up and John tells us, he, he said this, this whole sermon all these crazy things, hard to understand, a little bit confusing, a little bit disgusting. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. He, he said it right here. This is where he was teaching. 
a real place. He, he remembered it. John remembered it. Many others would remember it too. When he, when he puts that little note in there that he said it in the synagogue in Capernaum, people are like, oh yeah, I was there that day. People that weren't even following Jesus anymore were like, I was there that day. That was crazy. People were fighting. People were fist fighting. Jesus was talking about drinking blood. It was crazy. Yeah, I don't know what he was talking about, but it was crazy. Yeah. John's saying, no, it, it happened right here. And this was a difficult sermon. It was a difficult sermon. And I'm tempted to try to explain it away and spend time making it feel a little better, but I'm not going to because that's not necessarily the point today. If you're interested, I would encourage you to just Google John 6 commentary. There's commentaries that kind of break down what Jesus was talking about in these verses. If you're really, really interested, you can do that. But the point that I wanna make comes next. His followers, they're confused. They're, they're struggling. And so to make it really easy for us to swallow in the room today wouldn't do justice to what Jesus was talking about in the first century because the people there that knew him were struggling. It said this next, on hearing, on hearing it, many of his disciples, not just his 12, but the, the, the large group of followers, they said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And accept here literally means to just listen. How, like, how can we even listen to this? Jesus, this is such a hard teaching, but Jesus doesn't try to explain it away. He doesn't try to soften it. He doesn't try to defend himself. It just says this, that aware, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Are you offended? He, he knew they were. He knew it did. And he didn't defend. He didn't explain. He didn't try to backtrack. It's as if he wanted to surface their discomfort. And look at what happens next. From this time on, the time of that sermon in the synagogue in Capernaum, from that time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. This was the moment where they looked back and they said, yep, I, I used to follow, I used to trust, I was with him for a while, he fed me on the mountain, it was great, had a really long sermon one time, but I kind of stuck it out through that and I was following him, but... That day in Capernaum, that's what did it for me. I hit the eject button and I was out. And maybe for you or for someone you know, you've had a moment like this. You've had a moment where you were tempted to walk away or you did walk away. And maybe it wasn't the same scenario as them. Maybe for you, it was a divorce, a death, in the family or death of a loved one, a job loss, a diagnosis. Life did not go the way you planned it would. Life did not go the way you thought it should. And you were confused, angry. Why God, what are you up to? And you chose to walk away or you were tempted to walk away. That's what's happening here. At the end of this sermon. Jesus said to his closest 12, he says this, you don't want to leave too, do you? At what point I'm guessing that some of them did. Some of them were wrestling with it. Some of them considered it. And Jesus doesn't backtrack. He doesn't explain. He doesn't try to talk them down. He just, he just surfaces what's going on inside them. You don't want to leave too, do you? 
I'm sure that some of them considered it because I know that Simon Peter considered it. Because we see his consideration of it in the question that he poses back to Jesus. And this is what I don't want us to miss. Simon Peter says this. Lord, to whom shall we go? You don't want to leave too, do you? Well, I I thought about it. I'm wrestling with it. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, God, who, Jesus, to whom shall we go? Peter knew that leaving Jesus meant following someone else. And this same question is so important for all of us. To whom shall we go? In that moment where you're tempted to leave, in that moment where you're tempted to walk away, when life doesn't turn out the way you want it to, and you feel like you've done all the right things, and it's like, God, I, I felt like you were leading me this way, and now I can't believe that this has happened in my life, and our faith begins to get shaken a little bit. Even the 12 that followed Jesus experienced this. So of course you and I are gonna experience it. But in that moment, this is the question that we must answer. To whom shall we go? We will all follow something. We will all follow someone. You can't just say, well, no, it's, it's just a fairy tale. Bible's a fairy tale. Jesus is, is a fairy tale. He's fabricated. And then just go on with life. It's like, no, saying no to him and no to following him means you're gonna follow someone else. To whom shall we go? And Peter ends up answering the question for himself. Look at what he says. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And I love that he phrased it this way because Jesus' words is, is what was making everyone so confused, so disgusted, so turned off, people walking away. But Peter said, no, you have the words of eternal life. He didn't like what he heard that day. He probably didn't understand it but he had had enough personal experience with Jesus to conclude that Jesus had the words of eternal life. It wasn't myth. It wasn't legend. It wasn't based off of what someone else had told Peter. No, it was life on life, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year of being with Jesus. And seeing his life firsthand, Peter's conclusion. His conclusion, Jesus, there's no one else. I don't like what I heard today. I, I, don't, I don't even really know how to comprehend it. I don't like how it went down. I don't like the fact that people were leaving us, Jesus. But I've seen enough to know. Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. So I'm not going anywhere. If you're a Christian in the room today, that's your story. You follow Jesus long enough, you will experience some things that you can look back on when the going gets tough. You get in those moments where life doesn't go the way you want it to and you look back and go, no, I have personally and specifically experienced Jesus in my life and I know that he's got the words of life. So I'm not going anywhere. And if you're not a follower of Jesus today, this is the invitation to experience the life that is found in Jesus and to begin to follow him. And as you follow him, you'll experience him. And you don't have to believe everything in order to start following. 
You don't have to check all the boxes or sign on a form. You just, you can just start following him. And when you do, hopefully you experience what Peter experienced, the confidence that Jesus has the words of eternal life. That once upon a land, he lived and he ministered and he loved and he died on the cross and he rose again and he appeared to hundreds of people. And then the church in the first century was launched. We get to experience that savior firsthand. That's my hope for all of us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the men and women who had the courage to follow you in the first century. Even when um, they were risking their lives to do so after your death and resurrection, as they traveled around and they planted churches and houses and they had to hide and tell people this good news. But if they get caught, they would pay with their lives. God, thank you for their courage, the courage to write these experiences down and God for preserving these experiences through the years so that we could see him today, so that we could see you today. And God, would you help each of us with the areas of our lives and the times in our lives when we're tempted to leave too. Help us know that we can't leave without answering the question, to whom shall we go? And Lord, convince all of us once again, maybe for the hundredth time in here, or maybe for the first time, convince us once again that you have the words of eternal life. In Jesus' name.